Our Old Testament lesson comes from the book of Zechariah, the next to the last book of the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3, hear now the word of our God. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. This is the word of the Lord. Joshua was the the high priest in the days of, of Zechariah the prophet. And Zechariah sees this vision of Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord, the second person of the Trinity. And there also is Satan, the accuser, standing at his right hand to accuse him. Well, what's what's the problem? What's what's the accusation? Well, Joshua's wearing filthy garments. Uh, The word filth here refers to excrement. His garments are defiled. This means that Joshua cannot enter the Holy of Holies. He cannot do what the high priest is called to do, to represent his people, to bring his people. Indeed, when the high priest enters the Holy of Holies with with the the breastplate with the 12 stones on it, those 12 stones represent Israel. So when the high priest enters the Holy of Holies, all Israel enters the Holy of Holies with the high priest. And in the Old Testament, this is the great moment when, ah, The people of God can come into God's presence through the high priest. So if the high priest can't enter the Holy of Holies, God's people can't come before God. Indeed, all Israel is cut off from God's presence. Now, also think about who Joshua is. Okay, he's the high priest. So what garments is he wearing? His garments are the high priestly garments. These are the the finest garments, the most holy garments that any human being has ever worn. And they're covered in excrement. They're covered in filth. The holy garments of Aaron's priesthood are contaminated by human filth. Here's the problem. How can humanity enter the presence of a holy God wearing garments made by man, contaminated by man. The high priest needs to be clothed with pure vestments, a clean turban, new clothing that 
God himself provides. We sing of that in Psalm 132, where the psalmist says, Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. To which God himself responds, Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. When God clothes his priests with righteousness and salvation, then the people, his holy people, shout for joy. Think to the very end of Zechariah 3, when Joshua is clothed with clean garments, when that day comes, when when it says, I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day, in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. That's an image of rejoicing in the plenty, in the bounty, in the peace that comes when God establishes a righteous, holy priest who is clothed in righteousness and salvation. Our New Testament lesson comes from Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, hear now the word of our God. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, But Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Our, our culture is preoccupied with clothing. If you think about it, a couple hundred years ago, if you had a dozen shirts, you were, this is like you are amongst the top 1% of the most wealthy people in, in the world if you have a dozen shirts. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands as to how many of you have a dozen shirts. Today, we are besieged by advertisers telling us we need the latest fashion. And fashions change all the time in order to keep the fashion industry afloat. And the problem is we not only buy the clothes, we also buy the image. I'm 
I'm curious, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands for this either, but how many of you walk into a room and immediately notice what everybody else is wearing and decide how you measure up in comparison to everybody else? Now, for some of you, that may not be you at all. For others, you may be, "Mm, that's me. Now, there's there's nothing wrong with good grooming. Uh, Most people appreciate when you at least do the basics of taking care of yourself. But it can become an obsession, especially in a culture that's obsessed with clothes and looks. So when I ask the next question, don't go, where do you think I'm going? So what are you wearing? Paul, in Colossians 3, is actually using the language of taking off and putting on very much the language of clothing, that you would take off, put on clothes. So what are you wearing? Now, I want to I use these, these three circles that I've been using for the last few weeks because it helps us think about what Paul is, is doing here. He's, three circles, the, the inner circle is the core of who you are. The, the inner man is the term Paul often uses, or heart, or mind, different, different words, but same idea, your core of who you are. That's your inner person. Then there's the second circle, which is, he oftentimes uses the term flesh. It's referring to drives, desires, habits, patterns. And then there's the third circle, which is your thoughts, words, and deeds, the sort of the surface of your life. This is, and this is, this is where Paul will, get, will start talking about putting on, putting off, sort of the, these things that you should, that, how you go about that. Because there's three different things that he says about these three circles. There's, on the one hand, in your inner person, Paul says, you have died. Your old man is dead in Christ. So here's, here's where you got to see the cross in the middle here. And now that's who you once were, but now in Christ, you have been made alive. So now in your inner man, you're no longer the old person that you once were. That's not you anymore. He died with Christ. You have now been made alive in Christ. So in your inner person, in the who you really are, you're no longer who you once were. That's why Paul will say, sort of, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. But then he'll also say, put to death. Okay, that's the second circle. Because in the, the flesh, our drives, desires, habits, patterns, uh, that didn't just change when we became a Christian. Because this is where in our inner man, you have died with Christ, you've been made alive. But as far as we are outer man, as far as the flesh is concerned, we still have the same bodies. We still have the same... We are, we, it's, not, it's not as though uh, all Christians have just sort of like magically been sort of like totally purified. No, this is where we... But we have, we have been made new in Christ. But Paul will say, now put to death... Therefore, what is earthly in you? And then the third way he puts it is to, is to put off and put on. This is where this, 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 this is the language of taking, taking off clothes. And, and this is where the, the, the picture that Paul's using here is, is that of that just as the, the, the old man is dead, the new man is alive in Christ, but we still have the habit of wearing the old man's clothes. 
And the old man's clothes are pretty stinky. Remember Zechariah in chapter 3, uh, Zechariah 3. That Joshua in Zechariah 3 is wearing these filthy clothes and he has to take them off and put on the new clothes that God gives. So the kind of person that you are is reflected by what you wear. If you, if you have any friends who are big Harley Davidson fans, you can tell by what they wear. You can identify a Catholic priest from a mile away, or a police officer, a soldier. Uniforms reveal something about what a person does. And that's where Christians should be recognized by what we wear, uh, not our outer clothing, as it were, but the practices of how we live. Think of how Jesus puts this in Matthew 22, where he tells the parable of a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and he, he invited many, but many scorned the invitation. And so he, he told his servants to invite everyone, go out in the highways and byways, and get them, compel them to come in. And go out in the main roads, invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. Everyone's welcome. So if everybody's welcome, how, then how come the next thing happens? Because the next thing that happens is the king comes in to meet the guests, and he and he finds a man who's not wearing a wedding garment. And he's like, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? Now, the guy could have said, well, but king, you invited everybody. I'm just, I'm just trying to show. But he's not wearing a wedding garment. Everyone is welcome, but you must be clothed appropriately. The reason why the king can tell this man doesn't belong at the wedding is because he's not wearing a wedding garment. The same way. One who has died and been raised with Christ, one who has put on the new man in Christ, is going to begin more and more to look like it. So that brings us to the question, okay, so what should we be wearing? We sang in Psalm 132 about how God would clothe Israel's priests with salvation. But in Zechariah 3, the high priest Joshua is clothed in filthy garments. He's clothed in the high priestly garments but they're filthy. The holiest clothing ever made by man is contaminated. Only God can clothe humanity with clean garments. That man who tried to get into the wedding, if you're not clothed in the garments that, that the king provides, then you're not supposed to be at the wedding. I mean, this is, this is what Paul is dealing with in Colossians 3 when he says that on account of these, on account of the wicked practices of humanity, the wrath of God is coming. Only God can clothe humanity with clean garments. God demonstrated that in the Garden of Eden after the fall. Adam and Eve tried to clothe themselves in fig leaves. But self-made garments would not suffice. And so God clothes Adam and Eve with animal skins, demonstrating that the shedding of blood was necessary to cover Adam's sin. Now, we're, we sometimes will talk about being clothed uh, by God, simply in terms of our justification, simply in terms of the forgiveness of sins and the imputation of Christ's righteousness, that God clothes us in Christ. And that's true. We are clothed in Christ in our justification, that our sins are forgiven and God imputes to us. He reckons to us the righteousness of Christ. But here in Colossians 3, Paul's not actually talking about justification here. Here he's talking about sanctification. Here he's talking about what God does in us. First, in, you might say, the definitive act of sanctification, in when that the old man is dead and you have been made alive in Christ, that that 
new, that new life that is given you in Jesus. But then also in the more and more, that's why Paul will talk about putting to death these old things and putting off the ways that you used to live and putting on the new way of Christ. Because in, in Christ, we receive both justification and sanctification. In justification, your sins are forgiven. But justification by itself doesn't change you. Sanctification is where God changes you and makes you more and more like his son. And both are essential for salvation. Justification deals with the guilt of sin. Sanctification deals with the power of sin. And in Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14, Paul had set forth the basic concept of justification. He's forgiven our sins and canceled the record of debt against us on the cross. Now in Colossians 3, Paul is, is explaining our sanctification. Really, verses 5 through 11 of chapter 3 could be explained as who you are in Christ. You can summarize the whole paragraph by saying, you have put off the old man, you have put on the new man, therefore get rid of the old man's clothes. And first of, our, first, first of all, therefore put to death what is earthly in you. This is dealing with that second circle of the flesh. Put to death those old patterns and habits, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because you were once earthly-minded on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them. Your old way of thinking was earthly. And when Paul says earthly, he means hostile to God. He's not just saying earthly as though it's sort of, oh, ordinary life down here. No, it's earthly in, in Colossians 3 means hostile to God, opposed to God, seeking to uh, enmity with God. So this, the earthly way of thinking has followed the counsel of the serpent. It's in rebellion against God. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. That's what Paul means by earthly here. And the old man wore these filthy rags of sin, which Paul says in verse 8, now put them away, take them off. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. And notice... Why? Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So you can see in Paul, there's, there's this clear sense of, yes, this is a definitive act that God, you, you, are, you are dead in Christ, you've been raised in Christ, you, you are new. But then there's the ongoing, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Christ himself is the image of the invisible God, which we saw in chapter 1, verse 15. Christ himself is the image of the invisible God, and because of that, we are being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, because Christ is the one who, as the second person of the Trinity, is the creator. He is the one by whom and for whom all things were made. But now your old man has been crucified with Christ, as we saw in chapter 2. Your old nature was snipped away by the circumcision of Christ. Your old man is dead, so clean out the closet. Get rid of his stinking clothes and get yourself a new wardrobe. Now, what, notice the items that Paul inventories from the old man's closet. 
The clothes which Paul lists in verses 8 and 9 fit into two basic categories. There, there are sins of the temper, anger, wrath, malice. If you think about it, most of us, probably all of us, I mean, this categorizes a, a pretty significant chunk of our problems. Because, I mean, if you, if you know David Pallison's book, Good and Angry, uh, I, I've got chapter 2 memorized. Some of you laugh because you've read chapter 2, and you probably have chapter 2 memorized as well. Because chapter 2 is, do you have a, a problem with anger? And the whole chapter is shorter than the title. Yes. I mean, what more needs to be said? Is there an exception to that statement in all, of, in all of humanity, except our Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, we all have an anger problem. Even, even the most mild-mannered person who, who never blows his top has an anger problem. Why do I know that? Because he should blow his top from time to time. There are times when you should be upset about the things that are happening in the world, and if you're not upset about the things that are happening in the world, you've got a problem. <laughs> because... It's not that anger in and of itself is a bad thing. Does God get angry about sin? Yes. So should we be angry about sin? Yes. What's our problem? We overdo it. We wind up, oh, they did this to me. Oh, I'm going to do this to that. There's a reason why God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Notice God doesn't say vengeance is bad. It'll never happen. just, Just imagine a world in which vengeance never happened. Imagine a world in which the bad things that happened never got paid for, because if you think about it, I mean, it, it, the problem with vengeance is not, is not that, that vengeance is bad. <laughs> the problem with vengeance is that we are bad at it. I mean, this is where all the movies that have the, 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 have the, the, the you know, The Princess Bride, you know, with the, <laughs> I, you, my name is Inigo Montoya, you killed my father, prepare to die. I mean, the problem with the cycle of vengeance is that it just keeps going. It never stops. And then how many movies have been left with the, the vengeful character hollow and empty after the successful revenge? Because now what do I live for? There's, there's sort of, what's, what next? <laughs> what next is they're going to come after you now. <laughs> I mean, so, and that's, you know, think of all the Marvel movies. and <laughs> They can keep going forever and ever and ever because the cycle of vengeance never stops. And that's why Paul says that we must put these things away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouths. Anger, wrath, and malice, these are temper problems that we need to put away our, the old man's way of dealing with them. Now, later on, we'll get to how Paul talks about how should we deal with them. Because it's, it's not as though, it's not as, I mean, again, there are problems in the world. And so that's where having righteous anger, understanding how to use anger properly is important. Paul's point here is that anger quickly becomes wrath, malice, destructive patterns. And Paul says, put those away. Get rid of that way of of, of thinking and doing and living. But also, secondly, he talks about the, the sins of the tongue, slander, obscene talk, lying. After all, this is actually... This is what follows from anger, wrath, and malice. This is where our tongues very quickly turn against people, and we tear people down, and we speak of them in harmful ways. And when we speak of others in harmful ways, 
we are, we are being destructive with our tongues. And this is the way we used to live. This was, this was the way we once were. And Paul says, that's not you anymore. So take these things off. Throw them away. You have a new identity in Christ. Christ has given you a new wardrobe. Christ has become your life. And your, your new self is found in him. And so that should have an effect on what you wear. That should have an effect on what you look like, how you live. Paul says, you have, you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So the old man and his clothing go together and the new man and his clothing come as a package as well. It is unthinkable that a Christian should put on malice or filthy speech. The idea that a Christian should act that way, no, that's, that's inconsistent with who we are in Christ. In Colossians 1, Paul told us that Christ is the firstborn of creation and the firstborn from the dead. He is the image of the invisible God, and in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And now Paul says, you are being renewed in knowledge in the image of Christ. You are in him. You have been made complete in Christ, lacking nothing. And, and Paul reminds us that this promise is for all of God's people. Because here, verse 11, there, there is not Greek and Jew. There is not circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. These are some of the, the basic distinctions in, Roman, in the Roman world. You know, sort of in, the, in the Jewish world, there's Jews and Gentiles. And Paul says, in Christ, Jew, Gentile, nope, doesn't matter. In Christ, uh, circumcised, uncircumcised, nope, doesn't matter. In Christ, you know, barbarian, Scythian, these, these, are, the, these are the outsiders in the Roman world, the, those who are sort of considered beyond the pale. Paul says, nope, doesn't make a difference. Slave or free? Nope, doesn't make a difference. Why? Because Christ is all and in all. He is the, the center of creation, of redemption, uh, not just in some abstract theoretical way, but in the very nitty-gritty details of your life. And it's this which Paul turns to in the rest of the chapter. Since this is who you are in Christ, this is how you ought to live in, in all of life, verses 12 to 17, in your, in your households, verses 18 to 21, in your work, verse 22 into chapter 4. So this is really Paul saying, this, who you are in Christ affects everything you do because it's all about who you are and what that means for your life in Christ. In verses 12 to 17, Paul describes the new wardrobe of the Christian. And he uses five imperatives. He says, put on, which is the verb that controls verses 12 to 14. Then he says, let the peace of Christ rule. Then he says, be thankful. Then he says, let the word of Christ dwell. And finally, do everything in the name of Jesus. So these five imperatives drive the whole of what it means to be in Christ. Because these five imperatives are all rooted in the statement of who you are, the indicative of who you are in Christ Jesus. Since you are the elect of God, holy and beloved, live like it. And notice these three things that Paul says about you. You are, you are called the elect. 
Now, does that mean that Paul knows that every individual member of the church in Colossae is elect? No, but Paul believes God's promises that not one of Christ's sheep will be lost. And so, okay, Paul can't tell the sheep from the goats, but he refers to the whole church as the elect because as members of one body, they belong to Christ. But notice what this doctrine of election means for Paul. Some people would think, oh, to call people elect would make them proud and haughty. But Paul calls the Colossians the elect, God's chosen ones, and says this ought to prompt you to humility and patience. So he calls you the elect. He calls you holy because you have been set apart in Christ. You are a new creature in him. In your heart, in the core of, your, of, of who you are, you are pure and undefiled. You are sanctified in Christ Jesus because it is Christ who dwells in you. If, if you think about it, if Christ is your life, if you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God, then at the very core of who you are, you are holy. And you will never be any more holy than you are in Christ. After all, is Christ going to become more holy than he is? No, he is holy. That's, and you have been united to him. So this is where in your, it's, it's, it, sure, in your justification, you've been declared righteous in Christ. In your sanctification, in the core of who you are, you are holy. Now, there is still a whole lot of growth in holiness that all of us have left. I think we all know that. But we need to remember that in our in this definitive sanctification, in this basic, no, you've died with Christ. You've been made alive with him. You're no longer who you once were. You are holy in him. And since you are holy, I mean, notice Paul doesn't say, oh, uh, you're already holy. Who cares how you live? Far from it. He says, since you are holy in Christ, clothe yourself with garments fitting your new identity. And Paul calls you Beloved. You are beloved of God. It's a term that he will often use of, of Jesus as the beloved son. And here he uses it of you because you are in Jesus, God's beloved son. You are beloved of God. God has chosen you in Christ. He's made you holy in Christ. And he has loved you in Christ. These go together. It's not as though, it's not as though God needed us. He is holy beyond imagination. God dwells eternally in his own marvelous triune love. He, he didn't need us. But in his holiness, he set his love upon you. He pursued you. He has wooed you. He has called you to himself and loved you and set his affection upon you. Would you spurn his advances? Would you turn aside the love of the heavenly bridegroom? And yet, every time we sin, that's what we do. You who are the elect of God, holy and dearly loved, do not greet your bridegroom wearing the filthy rags of your old man. Rather, put on the beautiful garments which Christ has given you. Tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, forgiving others as Christ forgave you. You are to live as ones who are elect, holy, and beloved of God. So let's dig into these patterns and habits of, of the new self, the new inner man. 
verses 12 to 14 command us to put on this new clothing that is ours in Christ. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Because you are in Christ, because you have put on the new self, this is what should characterize our lives. Too often, we're content to live in the old filthy rags of our old self. But Paul says that as we get rid of the old rags, we are to put on the clothing of Christ. This is what repentance looks like, because repentance is where we take, we see our, our sin for what it is. We see the mercy of God in Jesus for what it is. And so with grief and hatred for our sin, we turn away from it to God with full purpose of a new endeavor after obedience. And that's, that's what putting, on, putting off and putting on looks like. As we get rid of the old rags, put on the clothing of Christ. As you put off anger and malice, put on compassion and kindness. As we put off slander and obscene talk, we are to put on patience and humility. It's not enough to, to get rid of the old. You also have to put on the new. In, in verse 13, Paul says, we must forgive as the Lord has forgiven us. When, when your brother sins against you for the 47th time, and he repents and asks you to forgive him, forgive him the way the Lord has forgiven you. Don't hold grudges. Oh, that's hard. I know. It's, it's really easy to see the pattern and say, oh, they, they keep doing it, they keep doing it, they keep... Ever thought about how God deals with you? Have you ever committed the same sin more than once? <laughs> yeah, that's how the Lord forgave you. Yeah. Then forgive the way God forgives you. Now, in verse 14, Paul doesn't repeat the verb. The sentence simply continues, above all these, love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and above all, love. Love binds everything together in perfect harmony. Again, the, the image of clothing I mean, in the, in the ancient world, they had the same, it was the same for them too. And sorry, guys, you can, you, you, most of you may not get this, but I understand from some of the, some, some, some of the ladies that there's oftentimes there's that, that one thing, perhaps an accessory, a belt, a sash, that makes the whole outfit work. I hear that's a thing. I don't know. But, Love is like that belt or scarf or whatever it is that, that binds the whole outfit together. Without love, the rest of the outfit doesn't hold together. Love is not sort of an optional accessory in the wardrobe of Christ. Love is the thing that makes everything else complete. Love is that which everything else is, is bound together by. The way in which we live as the people of God, as, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, 
the compassion, the kindness, the humility, the meekness, the patience, the bearing with, just all of those things without love, I mean, bearing with one another without love, that's just gritting your teeth. Forgiving without love, uh, that's just putting up with. Meekness, meekness without love, that's being a doormat. Kindness without love, what's in it for me? See, that's why love, without love, all the other things aren't really themselves. Because love is at the heart of everything else. That's why Paul puts it the way he does. That above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And, and then the second imperative is to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And the you here is plural, as throughout the whole passage. The peace of Christ is to rule in your hearts. Paul is speaking to an audience well familiar with the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. He says, it's not the peace of Rome that rules you. It's the peace of Christ, the peace of the Messiah that shall reign in your hearts. What, what peace rules you? Everyone seeks peace. Augustine points out that even outlaws, even gangs, seek peace among themselves. I mean, if you got if you got a, a, an outlaw group, and if you if you cross the, the the leader of the gang, the head of the mafia, whatever, you know, what's going to happen? I mean, the thing is, the mafia the, the mafia was never out to kill everybody. The mafia was out. It's a protection racket which very much like the, the ancient Roman world that Paul lived in, that the gang isn't out to destroy. The gang is out to protect the peace of their, of their own. And so everybody seeks peace. What sort of peace rules in your hearts? Do you seek peace from God or from others uh, when you deal with other people? Are you ruled by what they think of you? Do you seek peace at any cost? Are you a people pleaser? It may be tough. I mean, you may have in-laws who are difficult. You may have relatives who don't care about the gospel, don't care for you very much. What rules your heart when you are engaging with those people? Do you find peace in trusting Christ to exercise his sovereign power? Or do you seek peace in trying to establish peace yourself? And Paul says the only way to find peace in the midst of the chaos of life is to let your heart be ruled by the peace of God. I think of Brother Lawrence who wrote the classic called you know, The Practice of the Presence of God. I mean, Brother Lawrence chose to work in the kitchen because the constant service of others enabled him to keep his heart and mind fixed upon Christ. He could have sought advancement in the monastery, but... He recognized that God had called him to a life of simplicity. So he was content to live in a small place with simple work. And ironically, he's now the one that's famous. But Brother Lawrence became a counselor to younger monks and others who sought to live their lives in the presence of God. People would come to the monastery and talk with him. Others wrote to him and asked for counsel. And he, he wound up writing this little book because so many people wanted to learn his secret. How how come you are so content in life? 
They saw a life characterized by compassion, humility, and kindness, and they wanted to know how they could live that way too. He had found peace with God in serving others, allowing his life to be ruled by God's peace rather than seeking after his own selfish interests. And so let the peace of Christ rule your hearts, a peace which is rooted in recognizing that you all together as the body of Christ are called to peace in one body. Christ has reconciled us as one body to himself. Now he calls us to allow his peace to rule our hearts. We'll come back next time to talk more about the the last ones, about being thankful and what that looks like. But the peace of Christ is to rule our hearts. The peace of Christ is to be the, the, the dominant power that controls us as we walk before our Lord Jesus Christ as his people. So let's pray. Lord, have mercy on us because we too often do not seek your peace. Too often we are running after our own peace and we're trying to make peace and establish and control and be the one who figures things out. Help us to keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus, to set our hearts and minds on things above where Christ is seated at your right hand, that we might see in that light, in the light of of your heavenly throne, that we might see that all of the things that we are engaged in in our daily lives take on new purpose and new meaning in the light of the cross, in the light of your Son, our Savior, who sits at your right hand. Have mercy on us, Lord, and help us, because we are weak and frail, and we forget these things, and we turn aside, and we don't, we don't love the way you've loved us. We don't forgive the way you've forgiven us. So have mercy on us, O Lord, and help us. And by your Holy Spirit, work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.